This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, July 7th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kelms. Thanks for being with us. Be wise if you're outside today. Another heat advisory in effect until 8 tonight for all of us in the listening area. Ahead on our show, the author of Flex, a new play having a co-world premiere at Theater Squared in Fayetteville this month. We talked with Candace Jones and two actors from the production yesterday. It's a play about basketball, small-town life in Arkansas, and coming of age. First this hour, as the population of our region continues to expand, so does a need to assist people without permanent shelter. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports on those services. Two industrial washers are finishing their final load of daily laundry at Seven Hills Homeless Center. This is one stop on the tour Haley Wood, the center's director of development, leads for visitors. We do uh, two types of laundry here on site. Um, we do donation laundry, so if we think that something just may need to be cleaned before we get it out. We also do client laundry, so clients can drop off their laundry with us in the morning. Volunteers and workers tidy up the kitchen, finish sorting donations, and close the clinic. As the center's clients finish their meal and grab their things from the metal lockers outside the mess hall. Wood says the center sees hundreds of individuals a month who need anything from food to foot care. She says the number of people can vary depending on the weather. Um, when the cold weather happened, we went from, you know, around 500 individuals, unique individuals served a month to about 700. Um, and we're kind of seeing that still fluctuate in between those two numbers since that cold snap. From the center, it's about a five minute drive to the Walker Family Residential Community. This community is part of the Center's HOPE program, which provides rapid, transitional, and permanent supportive housing. These units here um, are our permanent supportive housing, housing units. And so for whatever reason, the clients in these middle units um, on property, they will never be able to live in housing without a case manager. And sometimes that's a mental health reason. Sometimes that's a physical health reason. The center is located near other entities geared toward those experiencing homelessness, such as the Salvation Army and Genesis Church. Wood says there is not one blanket answer for why people experience homelessness, but more affordable and available housing could help. Housing is hard for everybody, whether you have a home currently or not, whether you have a job currently or not. Housing's hard to find right now, right? We know the housing market is kind of a beast right now. Um, I think that's hard. Is it an easy fix? No. Um, and we, we definitely rely on really kind landlords in this time that work with us. We have scattered site housing. High prices and lack of available housing in northwest Arkansas is not something unheard of. Over the past five years, the average price of a home sold in Benton County rose about 55 percent, and in Washington County about 54 percent, according to an Arvest Bank Skyline report. Also, the average lease price for a multifamily unit increased about 6 percent, and vacancy rates in the region dropped from 3.4 percent to 3 percent, according to the report. So this is a special circumstance because of the university. That's Kevin Fitzpatrick. He is a University of Arkansas professor and the board vice president of New Beginnings, a bridge housing community in Fayetteville. He says this part of the state is unique because of how many students are also looking for housing. Many, not the 7,000 coming in, it's the other 23,000, many are clamoring for affordable places to live. Fitzpatrick says the housing stock accessible is limited to certain populations, and also the type of development taking place will not fill in cracks for people in need of affordable housing. The, the housing stock and, and the development that's taking place is not in a direction that's going to supplement what, what is missing for that particular group. I think generally the only population subgroups that are benefiting from this growth are college students who are getting more options uh, because of what, what is being developed and or people who live at a middle or upper income level that are really eligible to buy infill housing. Although growth impacts housing, Fitzpatrick says the COVID-19 pandemic left its large footprint on issues surrounding homelessness. I mean, it's almost like you have to look at, 
at pre-COVID and just take that 18 month, two year chunk of time and move it over um, and hope that 22 late and 23 begin to level things off and we can get back to the, to the same conversation that we were having in, in 2019. Like housing, domestic violence is another contributing factor in why some people experience homelessness. Teresa Mills is the chief executive officer at Peace at Home Family Shelter and says services are in demand. If we look at the last five years alone, you know, our service demand for services are up about 67%. Um, if we look at the last two years alone, um, demand for our services are up almost 40%. The domestic violence shelter offers programs including an emergency shelter, legal services, counseling, and housing assistance. In 2021, 151 of its clients stayed in a safe shelter, and 160 families received housing assistance through the shelter. I think that the over the last year to year and a half, we have certainly seen um, pretty dramatic increases in rent for a lot of our of the families that we work with, and you know, I. I sign a lot of rent checks for our families um, every month. And I think, my goodness, you know, this, this rent check is more than my mortgage. Mills says even if people can't afford ongoing rent, the upfront costs to get in a place such as a deposit, last month's rent, and pet fees is a barrier for some experiencing homelessness or fleeing domestic violence. For Fitzpatrick, the general issue rests in affordable housing. And it's not about one type of housing. It's about a menu of housing options that we need to create. And it's ultimately not the responsibility of myself and or, or an organization, a nonprofit organization. It's largely the responsibility of government. You know, I mean, housing is a right. I mean, it's not some option that we, you know, have. Oh, I think I'll have housing or I won't. If I'm rich, I have it. If I'm poor, I don't. No, it's, it's, a, it's a human right. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. The first confirmed case of monkeypox is in Arkansas. Secretary of Health Jennifer Dillahay could not be more specific as to what region of the state, saying it could be potentially identifying the patient. She says monkeypox is a virus that is primarily contracted by close contact of an individual who already has the virus. Be contact with the rash. The rash is very infectious. And once a person gets infected with the virus, it may take several days, a week to two weeks, to develop the symptoms. Monkeypox is much more closely related and transmitted to other pox diseases, such as chickenpox or smallpox, and is not nearly as contagious as COVID-19. Symptoms for monkeypox tend to be fever, headache, and muscle aches, which Dillahay points out could be symptoms for myriad illnesses. But the rash that often comes with monkeypox makes it a little more obvious that it's different from, say, COVID-19. You know, because in the beginning, the rash doesn't look typical. As the rash evolves, it looks more and more like typical monkeypox. So if a healthcare provider has seen photos of it, they may recognize it. Treatment for monkeypox is not available at pharmacies and must be obtained through the CDC at this time. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Format Festival, merging music, art, and technology, September 23rd through the 25th in Bentonville. This inaugural three-day festival features art installations and experiences from world-renowned artists, including Doug Aitken, Nick Cave, plus a music lineup of over 50 artists. For tickets and more information, format-festival.com. This is Ozarks at Large. It's the late 1990s in small-town Arkansas at Theater Squared through the middle of this month. Candace Jones, an Arkansas native, wrote the play Flex about young women becoming adults and embracing basketball, using inspiration from her own adolescence and teenage years in Dermot, Arkansas. Yesterday, two of the actors in Flex came to the Carver Center for Public Radio and talked with us about working with Candace Jones' script with the playwright in the room. Really collaborative, mm -hmm. like, yeah, excitingly. You never know, you know, how something is going to, like, 
how you interpret it and also how she wrote it. So mm-hmm. that collaboration of like her intention and our um, our instinct kind of come together mm-hmm. and fuse, which is really beautiful about that process. Yeah, it was very special to be able to have Candrice in the room because so often you go to work on plays and it's like you have the director and you have your fellow actors and you all create something together, but to have the person who put pen to paper mm-hmm. and created this beautiful world just to go to her and be like, Candrice, what does this mean? Or, Candrice, <laughs> yeah. what do you think of this choice? And just have her give her honest feedback was Absolutely. so rare and so awesome. The voices of Elena Kai-Chester and Sydney Lolita Cusick, who are respectively April Jenkins and Sharice Howard, high school basketball players in the play Flex. This play takes its name from an offensive scheme in basketball. Also part of our conversation yesterday by phone was playwright Candace Jones. She says she agrees it was helpful for actors to have in-room access to the playwright. However, I like to sit back, um, especially the first few days, and kind of be a fly on the wall so that I can discover how they come into the process as um, actors, what their natural instincts are. I don't want to, you know, bring... My my voice is already there on the page, um, filling up the room. So I enjoy, you know, viewing how they, as they said, bring their own instincts and their own choices to the table, their own voices to the table. And at the end of of the day, hopefully, you know, by the time we reach performance, the entire narrative will not just be them spouting out my voice, my words, my tone, but finding their own nuances Mm -hmm. within the words that I've written. And I truly think that has happened in this process. There's a little bit of, uh, Candace, it sounds like an ego check for you, too, because, you know, these are your words, these are your emotions, but you're willing to share them with the the actors. Yeah, I... Ego check, ew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if it's an ego check. Um, by the time a play gets to this stage, your ego has been checked probably a thousand <laughs> times mm-hmm. because um, the workshop process is so so necessary but also so brutal mm-hmm. that uh, any ego that I went into my very first workshop, which I recall... Um, my first workshop with this play with actors was at ground floor at the Berkeley Rep. Um, I did go into that workshop with quite a bit of ego. I thought I had a finished product already. <laughs> <laughs> and then the actors in that process began asking very hard, very necessary questions. And it really humbled, you know, it, it humbled me. But also I, I knew that whatever questions they were asking were for the betterment of the characters and the betterment of the play. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I and I could either, either listen to those questions or not. And, or, you know, so but because I listened to those questions and all, and many other questions um, that were asked about this play and this narrative um, up until this point, and I'm still, like, pondering, some of those questions and, you know, impulses from people who have experienced the play. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, my, my, it's, it's very easy to, you know, just, you know, like I said, be a fly on the wall and be very patient and not demand that an actor say this particular line in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes it just, you know, what I have in my head doesn't always happen. Um, and, and many times when that, when, you know, when the actor takes ownership over a role, um, you, you discover something or a playwright can discover something in their own writing that they had no idea was even there. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, all, we're all humans in a space. We bring our own experiences and emotions into the space and you just never know what beauty is going to arise out of all that. Actors in the room, let me ask you about the first few times you saw the script and you started to put life into it. Did you have questions or what did you think about your characters? Hmm. I think the first time I read the script, I was just in awe of how epic it is, but at the same time, these are like everyday people. Mm -hmm. And that combination of 
largeness, but also just realness and how you can just relate to them. And specifically with Sharice, I remember I first read her and I'm a preacher's, my character's a preacher's kid. Um, I'm a preacher's kid. And I remember just being like, ooh, this, this, this is a very different route I could have taken. I could have been this annoying anti da da da. But then I, I really got to know her. And I'm like, she's just, she's not annoying. I mean, she is annoying. But <laughs> she's, she's, she's naive and innocent and sweet and kind. And it's just crazy how you go from looking at something when you first read a character and then falling in love with the character. And Karen just does such a good job at just creating people you fall in love with. Um, Absolutely. And I'm, I really love Sharice now, so. Yeah, I would say that similarly, I, I think with, when you find the character's flaws and mm-hmm. like, when you can really, um, first off, embrace them, but also humanize, you know, wh- what these people are going through and discovering along the way. There's topics of sexual education, and I think April's character, who I'm playing, is definitely a, a voice in that regard of like, how do we talk about this and mm-hmm. how do we discover you know, what what benefits can we have in regards to understanding sexual education and yep. protection and all these things uh, for women and then mm-hmm. it bettering their future going yeah. forward. I think the topic of, at large really surprised me even, so. Mm-hmm. There's some, you know, themes here, obviously basketball, but all, uh, coming of age. Yeah. Yeah. Coming of you know, age, you, yes. you mentioned naivete. I think at a certain age we're all somewhat naive about how to have conversations and then small town right Mm -hmm. now you grew up in cincinnati Mm -hmm. not a small town no but the suburb of it is okay suburb of it i would say is a little bit more small town Mm -hmm. and you grew up in chicago not a small town no (laughs) candris you grew up where i grew up in Vermont, arkansas a very small town. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I grew up in a small town as well in North Arkansas, so I'm sure there were differences but also similarities. What was important to you, Candace, about getting the small town life, the small town conversations, the small town thoughts onto paper and onto stage? Yeah, um, so I, I often say that this, uh, I started writing this play, I think, when I was 35 or 36 years old. And I don't know if I would have um, written it, written a as mature of a play when I was twenty twenty five years old. Um, but I but by the time I got ready to like really sit down and write the play, and I knew I was gonna mirror the play, um, mirror mirror Duramont, Arkansas in the play. I, I wanted to talk about, or uh, I wanted to bring forth to the table. Um, the things that I love about growing up in a small town and also some of the things that made me question life in a small town. So um, the, the, the major thing, two major things, um, one specifically just I think that's every, that's universal to anyone growing up in a small town is the idea of you are from here. You are always a product of this small town, and you carry those values with you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, um, I, I think that you know, what whatever neighborhood you know you're from, you know, you you want to pay homage. And I, I really, you know, wanted to get that right in this play, paying homage to what it means to grow up in a town like Duramont, Arkansas. Um, I also wanted to, um, um, bring forth to the table the lack of access, particularly in Dermot. Um, right now it's a food desert, like the Piggly Wiggly does not exist anymore. There's a, there's another, um, um, store that has, or there, there's another business that has occupied that building. It's kind of a store, but it does not, you know, have fresh fruit mm-hmm. or anything. You know, it's, you know, it's it's almost like the town has become more isolated. Um, and, you know, the, the older I got, I, I realized many of the problems that existed in Duramont, Arkansas, were due to um, the growing isolation um, that, that's still um, very palpable there. What, what's your history with basketball, either of you? 
players? I played in high school. I played yeah. in high school for a, a little while until I was about 17. Were you mm-hmm. good? I was. I good was outside really good. shot? I, so I, I was telling Kendra, so I was going to go to college to play, but I, I wanted the arts. I really I lo- I loved the arts. So it was just I, it was time to choose. And I chose it. And I'm really grateful because I want to brought it, <laughs> me to this play. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Fifth through eighth grade, uh-huh. captain, you know, all of the <laughs> my middle school basketball team. Um, but other than that, no, I was an athlete. In other, I ran track for high school. That was my sport there. But basketball always has a very special place in my heart. Um, my little brothers are, are ballers, so went to a lot of games growing up. And, Candice, your experience with basketball? Um, yeah, I played in junior high, high school, played as much as I could growing up, actually. Like, there was no question that, you know, I was just, I just really, really loved playing basketball and being, um, I thought I wanted to be done with it, um, in high school. And I went to college in another small town, Monticello, Arkansas. I went to school at UAM and, um, the, and shortly after joined the team there because I, I missed it very much. <laughs> I think, I don't know a thing about acting, but I think acting must be one of the hardest things to do, you know, properly, to make me out of the audience believe you. Then I'm always amazed when something else is added, whether it's dancing or singing mm-hmm. or looking like, you know, how to handle a basketball all while still, you know, getting the emotion right and being yeah. fully invested. What's that like for you on stage when it's happening and you've got so much going on. You're definitely juggling. Mm-hmm. I think you, something about music particularly, they say, say singing is an extension of speech. So you can think of dance that way. You can think of like the activity that we're doing. Like we're all, it's all connected. Yeah. So it's really not as separate as you think it mm-hmm. is. It's still just being infused. It's just a different tool of yeah. our body. And even the way Kandris wrote the play itself, all of the... I can't, I'm, I'm sure, Kendra, you can quote this stage direction you have, but all of the lines we have are infused with moments in basketball, and yes. it's like something about the language never leaves their lips because they're mm-hmm. at the height of the season. Yeah. So even when you look at the, the words on the page, it's like even if we're not necessarily playing actual ball in that scene, it's still seeing the periphery, going for the shot, you know, blocks the shot, heavy on defense um, in the lines that, we li- that we're learning. So even in the process of learning the lines, mm-hmm. you married the language of basketball to every moment. So when you actually did have the ball in your hand and you are running these flex plays and doing these scenes, it just felt, like you said, like an extension of what we were already doing. Yes. I think that's something really dope of how it's in how it's written, that she builds in the language and she builds in basketball to every single moment that you're doing. So when you actually do start getting on your feet and like having the lines, but also you're not now shooting and you're trying to play defense, mm-hmm. you have it all married. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just becomes, it also really helps with character building because, like, you now are these girls who are in the height of the season, and you're, you know, everything is about basketball, even when it's not. This is a question to all of you because we're talking about different generations mm-hmm. between Candace and the two of you, right? Did you find that there are similarities between the generations? Are the conversations yes. that yeah. Candace recounts and puts in the script similar to ones you had mm-hmm. in high school? A hundred percent, and I feel like that's something I... I was talking to a lot of people about how, like, a lot of time when you think someone older is writing about, like, high school-age kids, you, you'd think they there's, like, a gap or they, like, don't understand what's happening with the youth now. Um, but it's so real, and it's mm-hmm. so, like, I, I feel like that was this, this is something that could be talked about even now. Neither of us are still in high school, but it's still so realist. I think also that language of basketball helps because this is, like, a team, and there's something about being on a team and being in, like, being with people you've known your whole life and having yeah. there's there's a language and a shared sisterhood a sisterhood that I feel like no matter what age you get it still is like similar conversations happening um and like you're talking about with like learning about sex and yeah. my character is queer and coming into that identity even though it is written in 90 98 um or set in 98 there's still so many conversations with young queer women in the church that have not changed since then and that you are still trying to figure out and navigate which I think is so, um, it's just so real. I keep yeah. saying it's real, but it's so real. Yeah, absolutely. And without giving away too much, but even that like bond that you have as you all are discovering things about the world mm-hmm. that you did not know, like mm-hmm. that is so real. It is so real and so prevalent, I think, no matter what generation you're yeah. coming from. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's something really lovely about Candace's work. 
like, if you want to see a basketball game on stage, all right? It's, Listen. It's very cool to see. The set is dope. Yes. Okay? Yes. The characters are fly, mm -hmm. all right? It's all black women, black woman playwright, black woman writer. Director. Director. Like, <laughs> come on now. You, you, you know you want to see this play. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> I would I basically second what she said. <laughs> I think yeah. that like something I would love for people to take away is that you are seeing, you know, your yourselves through the eyes of black women. Mm -hmm. And that's not common, but we want more of it. So support that and like, yeah, get out, see this, see the show, mm -hmm. um, and see shows that are, you know, for us by us in mm -hmm. that way as well. Yes. Candace, I'm gonna give the playwright the last word. Yeah, so um, I don't use this phrase lightly. This play truly is, to me, black girl magic on stage, mm -hmm. black woman magic on stage. Um, there, are, there are quite a few sports stories, especially with basketball, in which the women play second fiddle to a male coach or a male basketball player, hmm. or they play second fiddle to an issue. This play is about the women, mm -hmm. the women who create the story. And they look very good playing basketball. <laughs> <laughs> which is important, right? Yes. I mean, which is, which is very important. Um, I think by the time they hit their first three or four shots, which happens pretty quickly, we, we it's like, okay, we're ready. We're in it. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and it's it's just coming from the playwright. Um, it's it, it was just beautiful for me to watch, and I think it would be beautiful for anyone to watch. Candrace Jones wrote Flex, now on stage at Theater Squared in Fayetteville. We also talked with actors Sidney Lolita Cusick and Elena Kai Chester. Our conversation took place yesterday. The play is on stage through July 17th. More information available at theater2.org. KUAF is supported by Greenacre Easy Living, a small assisted living located in Rogers and serving the elderly of Arkansas under the same ownership since 1992. 631-1552 or greenacreeasyliving.com for more information. KUAF is giving away two tickets to James Taylor at Walmart Amp Wednesday, July 15th at 8 p.m. with 24 top 10 hit songs including You've Got a Friend, Fire and Rain, Shower the People, and more. Taylor's music ushered in the era of the singer-songwriter in the 1970s. KUAF.com to enter to win. The winner will be announced Wednesday, July 15th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com for more information and to enter to win. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm pleased to tell you that on the phone with me is Sherry Ottaviano, our membership director at KUAF. Sherry, happy July. Happy July. It's um, kind of warm, but that's what July is supposed to be. Definitely, definitely. I I'm, I know you love the warm weather, but I'm kind of ready for a break. <laughs> I'm ready for some serious rain and some cooler temperatures. I, yeah, you're right. I do like high heat, high humidity. I understand that not everybody does, and so if we got a break, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I also <laughs> <laughs> don't have a problem with how our listeners responded during our June fundraising uh, month. Oh, my goodness. I'm so grateful. Thanks to all of our um, the folks who uh, went online and made a donation, those who signed up for new monthly pledges. We appreciate you becoming sustaining members. That's a great way to keep KUAF going. And to all of our existing sustaining members um, who have been with us for so long and those who uh, made an additional gift during the month of June, we were able to surpass our goal. Now, if, so thank you. Yes, thank you. And if we could... Beyond Public Radio, we would give each and every one of you some kind of prize beyond the programming that you help us uh, bring to you. But we can we can provide uh, one listener as our June winner, correct? That is correct. And I'm happy to say Ted Swedenberg, excuse me, Swedenberg of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, he is the winner of a night out on KUAF. I'll be sending him 
uh, a gift card to Penguin Ed and some movie passes to Malco Theater. This is great. Ted has been a listener and supporter of KUAF for a long time. I'm happy to hear his name called. Yes, I was really excited when I saw it come up. So, um, yeah, congratulations, Ted. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, And if anyone else wants to be considered, all you have to do is make a contribution. You can send a a check to the station or you can go online at supportkuaf.com. Um, and if you uh, prefer to talk to a live person, you can always call me here at the station. Sherry Otaviano is KUAF's membership director. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Kyle. Have a great day. Time now for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Did you know there are 22 banks that have a physical presence in Rogers and 27 overall in Benton County? That is according to the FDIC, but those numbers will soon change. We reported this week that First Community Bank in Batesville is planning to open a loan production office in the Pinnacle Heights development in Rogers. Pending regulatory approval, that office will be a full-service branch by the end of the year. Along with that announcement, the bank has hired Natalie Bartholomew as community president for Rogers and Northwest Arkansas. Coming up on today's show, we will visit with First Community Bank chairman and CEO Dale Cole, about the bank's history and what its growth strategy is in Northwest Arkansas. That is after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender. First Community Bank opened in Batesville in August 1997 with about 3.4 million in assets and 14 employees. Now in its 25th anniversary year, the company has 26 Arkansas branches, four in southwest Missouri, and $2.06 billion in assets. The company's next phase of growth will wind through northwest Arkansas, where it will soon open a loan production office in Rogers with intentions to have multiple branches in the market over the next several years. Here is Chairman and CEO Dale Cole to discuss the bank's growth in other areas of the state and its future plans in northwest Arkansas, under new market president Natalie Bartholomew. We went into Searcy about 20 years ago uh, with a LPO, turned into a full bank. Uh, now that bank is, uh, that region is around $300 million. So we went into Jonesboro. Jonesboro, we started out with an LPO for secondary mortgage lending, and that was our intent for Northwest Arkansas because you look at market up there, it's absolutely huge. I mean, there's so much business in northwest Arkansas, and there's an awful lot of competition. But what we have done in each of our markets, I'll go back to Searcy, we found the person, the man with the local knowledge. And so when I started this bank here in Batesville 25 years ago, I found the man with the local knowledge, Boris Over, who is our president for our entire company. So whenever I look at these markets that I want to go into, I try to find the person with the local knowledge. And so we found this location in northwest Arkansas, absolutely a wonderful location for an LPO for secondary mortgage lending. So that's where we were going down that pathway. We leased a space there. And then somebody contacted us. Uh, so that 
somebody was Natalie Bartholomew, the person with the local knowledge. She's been in that market uh, for a long time, and she sought us out uh, and said she would like to consider coming to work for us. So, Paul, we interviewed her, uh, got to know her. I always interview people two or three times, and so we did. And so she asked me uh, what we were planning, and I told her that, uh, you know, whenever we find the right person, we'll make it full service. And she said to me that she wanted the opportunity to run a bank someday. So the way we operate our company is a little bit different than most banks. Uh, We find that person with that local knowledge. We give them the authority to manage their bank. So I'm going to go back to Searcy again. Searcy has uh, their own business development board, their own loan authorities for their loan committees, uh, and we'll do that. We did that same thing in Jonesboro. We did that same thing in Little Rock. We didn't start with a, a, a business board in Little Rock or Jonesboro, but we're going to start one in northwest Arkansas with Natalie Bartholomew. So she'll have that uh, responsibility to manage that region. That way we can respond quicker to our customers. So when people need things for their community, in lending or otherwise, then we can respond very quickly. And that's the secret, really, to our success throughout our company. So it sounds like you you do have plans to um, maybe establish branches in some other areas of northwest Arkansas down the road. Would that be fair to say? Maybe Bentonville, Fayetteville, Springdale? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, we, We take it one step at a time. I've learned in managing this company from... Starting out, it, we started with $3,452,300 in capital. So now our capital is now over $180 million. And so what we've done is to make each branch profitable before we go that next step. So we don't go out and I'm not going to go out and build, you know, five new branches in northwest Arkansas. This was starting out as a loan production office. We already have three employees in that area. Before Natalie, uh, just didn't have an office, and so we found this office, and we're going to tenant finish out for that LPO. Now we will use that as a full-service bank. Once we get enough business that we can see profit uh, on the horizon, then we'll go to another community there in northwest Arkansas. Yeah. Don't know which don't know which one it'll be, Paul, but that will develop. And that is Dale Cole, the chairman and CEO of First Community Bank in Batesville. It's a two billion dollar plus asset bank with thirty locations in Arkansas and Missouri, and the company will soon have a loan production office up and running in Rogers Pinnacle Hills area led by market president Natalie Bartholomew. We've got that story online now at nwabusinessjournal.com. Arkansas's fiscal year ended June 30th, and state officials say it ended with a record $1.6 billion budget surplus. On Tuesday, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson said he will call lawmakers back into special session on August 8th to discuss possible tax cuts. And J.B. Hunt has acquired a three-building office park a half mile from its corporate campus in Lowell for $18 million. They include roughly 109,000 square feet, and most of it is vacant space. Chief Operating Officer Nick Hobbs told the Business Journal that the new real estate will support the company's continued growth, though there are no imminent plans for those buildings. And the latest issue of the Business Journal is out this week. In our cover story, Jeff Delarosa visits with Darren Gray, the chairman and CEO of Arkansas ad agency CJRW, to discuss recent changes in the marketing industry. We've also got an interview with Dana Schlagenhoft, who is the executive producer of a digital storytelling platform operated in-house by Bentonville nonprofit Downtown Bentonville. 
and Fayetteville firm Field Agent has launched an online marketplace for supplier services. All of those stories and more are in the latest issue, and you can read the digital version online at nwabusinessjournal.com. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. Governor Asa Hutchinson says teacher pay raises will not be on the agenda for a special session he intends to call next month. The governor says the core of the session, expected to begin August 8th, will be to provide tax relief. The state reports a record general revenue surplus in excess of $1.6 billion. The governor says consideration for providing alternatives to abortion after the overturning of Roe v. Wade could be part of the session, as could topics related to school safety. Active cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas are up. The Arkansas Department of Health reports more than 12,000 active cases after a one-day increase of nearly 2,400 cases in Wednesday reporting. ADH also reports there are 277 patients with the virus in Arkansas hospitals, with just more than 50 of those patients in intensive care units. And the ADH counts more than 6,200 new cases in the state the past seven days of reporting. Washington and Benton counties recorded the second and third most cases in the past week, 472 and 401, respectively. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Pentimeter. We open Sound Pentimeter today with the Prism Quartet, interpreting an excerpt from Capriccio, a piece for four saxophones written by American composer Alexis Bacon. Alexis Bacon is a composer recognized nationally and internationally for her music inspired by a diverse array of sound worlds, including vanishing American oral traditions, medieval poetry, Norwegian field music, and Afro-Brazilian religious ceremonies. A capriccio is usually a free-form and lively piece of music, fast and virtuosic, and I love the freedom and freshness that this piece brings to my ears. It was the Prism Quartet interpreting an excerpt of Capriccio, a piece for four saxophones written by American composer Alexis Bacon. Recently, I came along the piece Death Speaks. This piece, written by Pulitzer Prize awardee David Lang and premiered at Carnegie Hall in 2012, explores the voice of death as the interlocutor. In the movement, mist is rising, death speaks to us in a human, lonely, imperfect voice. Let us listen to an excerpt from Mist is Rising. I will drive your sadnesses away. My eyes 
That was Mist is Rising from Death Speaks by composer David Lang, featuring musicians Shara Worden, Bryce Disner, Nico Muley, and Owen Palette. The Texan a cappella group Pentatonics, formed in 2011, is known for their arrangements of music using rich vocal harmonies, beatboxing, percussion, and bass lines. And that was their arrangement of My Favorite Things, the well-known song from the 1959 musical The Sound of Music. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens Red copper kettles and warm woolen mittens Brown paper packages tied up with string These are a few of my favorite things Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels Doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles Doggies that fly with the moon on their wings These are a few of my favorite things Coffee with heavy cream in the morning, orange sunset, spontaneity, Indian food, cleverly and profound organized words, salsa music, the blue color, cheese, listening to NPR and to KUAF are some of my favorite things. I invite you today to support KUAF. Member support, particularly monthly sustaining support, allows KUAF to bring to you sound perimeter on Ozarks at large and many other opportunities to connect as a community and to open windows to the world. Make your gift at supportkuaf.com today. And thank you. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with sound perimeter. 
Sound Penimeter is a segment I write and host, regularly produced and supported by Timothy Dennis, Kyle Callums, and Lee Wood. Sound Penimeter is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. We hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. You can follow us on Spotify. More information in our show notes. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, Dale Carpenter and Robert Cochran discuss their new book, Reporting for Arkansas, the documentary films of Jack Hill. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore finds out more about Jack Hill's work, as does one of the authors. I didn't know that till right now. Right now is when I learned that story. And if I had known that story a year and a half ago, it would have been in the book because it's so, it's it's a it's a kind of perfectly revealing anecdote yeah. about Jack. Plus, Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics helps us discover more about the week's news, and we'll have more. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. And when you schedule the show by using the Ozarks at Large podcast or by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. By the way, NPR's live coverage of the hearings into the violence at the United States Capitol will continue Tuesday morning beginning at 9 on KUAF. We'll have live special coverage Tuesday morning on KUAF. KUAF is supported by Arcom Plus, taking products and services from vision to reality. Arcom Plus offers custom wedding packages, graduation announcements, note cards, and more. Printing nwa.com or 444-7711 for additional information. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, opening July 2nd. Free tickets at crystalbridges.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Springdale. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas, and we have been your source for NPR News and much more since 1985. Contributors to today's show included Anna Pope, whose stories originate in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio, Paul Gatling, and Leah Uribe. Matthew Moore produced today's show in Studio 120, and he contributed the reporting about the first monkeypox case in Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced this week's Sound Perimeter. The Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is produced by Stephanie Brock. Thank you, Sherry Ottaviano, KUAF Membership Director, for being with us today. And thank you for your continued support of Ozarks at Large Public Radio and KUAF. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate today. Temperatures will be above 100 throughout the KUAF listening area. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thank you so much for being with us. We will be back tomorrow for a work week ending show at noon and 7 on your public radio station.